Good evening, everybody. We are getting ready to start, so if we can get everybody to mute themselves, and we will try to get the screen share to work and see what we can do here. Great. Looks like that's working to me, so uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this time together. We thank you for this amazing book of mere Christianity and for the profound issues that it addresses about what it means to be human, what the purpose of life is, and the way that the gospel can be a transformative influence in this culture. Lord, we pray that you would be with us in our time tonight. We pray for technological mercies, and we pray that you would help us to hear uh, those things that are needful in our lives, that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts in this time. We pray that you would bless us with your presence, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are, as usual, going to begin uh, with our scripture verse uh, from Second Peter. And again, the idea of the scripture verse is the more that we lean into our relationship with God, into our relationship with Jesus, that that is where we will find grace and peace when we develop our knowledge of God and of Jesus in our relationship. It changes the way that we view reality. So let's say this verse together. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. As I say every week, that's a, that's a verse that'll preach, but I'm going to restrain myself from that and uh, move on into the class. So uh, for those of you who are new, one of the great things is that we are getting new people just about every week. Just a brief introduction about how to approach this class. Um, there are multiple levels that you can engage at. You can be on the beach, which means you just appear when you feel like it. You don't read anything. You kind of pay attention when you feel like it. Um, and I'm delighted to have you. Whatever floats your boat, that's great. Or if you want to be somebody who is snorkeling, where you pay attention um, to those parts that are really interesting to you, but not so much to the other things, that is great too. Or if you are a scuba diver, where you love all of the details and you want the backstory on everything and you like to do extra reading and homework, um, there will be more of that to come. Uh, for you, and I'm delighted to have you if you want to be at that level as well. I'm just glad you're here. And I also want to say, if you are not on my email list, uh, please go to St. Philip's Church Charleston on Google, and uh, our website will come up, and you can just send me a message asking me to add you. 
I usually end up adding somewhere between five and 10 people each week. Uh, so uh, please do that. Uh, there are a lot of resources that come in the email that will help you keep up, especially if you miss a week. A couple of things about this book. I still remember, as I've told you before, uh, when I first read Mere Christianity, somebody had told me I really needed to read it because I was having a crisis of faith. And so I blocked a couple of hours and I sat down and I read the whole book. And I thought my head was going to explode. That was a terrible way to read it. I didn't like it at all. And then I told my friend who had recommended, why did you tell me to read that book? And she said to me, you read it in completely the wrong way. You need to read one chapter at a time, think about it, pray about it, chew about it, and then read the next chapter. So I encourage you to do that. Reading out loud is great since these were original radio talks. Uh, they work very well that way. And then the C.S. Lewis Doodle is another great resource. So I am delighted that uh, we are going to be able to engage this material tonight because we are moving on into our next little section. And I'm going to try to pull up some music here uh, and see if anyone has any idea what this is. So let me try to get this going. seeing any guesses, uh, but I am going to send the link out in the email. That is actually one of my favorite pieces of music, and it is uh, by two of my favorite composers at once. And you may ask, how is that possible? And the reason is that the original theme of that is called the third tone melody and it was written by Thomas Tallis in the 1500s. Thomas Tallis was the great boy genius chorister who became one of the youngest organist choir masters at Canterbury Cathedral in the 1500s. And that piece, um, the third mode melody, was originally written to go with the psalm. And later on, it became the basis of several different hymn tunes and Usually, if we sing it in church, uh, the words we sing to it are, I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. 
But part of what is really interesting about that piece of music is that it's written in what is called the Phrygian mode, P-H-R-Y-G-I-A-N, Phrygian mode, uh, which there's very little music written in that mode. But one of the reasons that this is appropriate for Lewis class is that Lewis loved the medieval cosmology. And part of the uh, medieval cosmology is this idea of the planets being connected with different things. And the planet connected with the Phrygian mode was Mars. And I did see somebody got that the uh, the person who took that theme and then worked it into this Fantasia was Rafe Vaughn Williams. So good job on guessing that. Uh, Rafe Vaughn Williams was associated, um, not closely, but knew a number of the Inklings. And uh, he, of course, was the great church musician of the early 20th century, but wrote this Fantasia on a theme by Thomas Tallis. It is a gorgeous piece of music, so when I send the link out, I commend to you to uh, listen to it. It's one that I'm sure Lewis heard during his lifetime, and because he loved Talos, I'm sure he appreciated it. So a little bit of review of context. Remember, we're in England in wartime. The BBC is broadcasting these talks. We talked about the pivotal role of Jimmy Welch, the director of religious broadcasting, and insisting they get Lewis to do these talks and not some fusty old clergyman from the Church of England. We've talked about the RAF and how that helped Lewis prepare uh, to be able to address the common man. We talked about both prefaces, Lewis's humility, and this idea of mere Christianity. So I want to just run quickly through book one uh, because we finished it last week, but it's an important background before we move into book two. So book one, the title, Right and Wrong, is a clue to the meaning of the universe. Lewis is trying to address the universal hunger for meaning and purpose here, trying to get at things that don't really have anything to do with religion, but are part of the human condition of trying to figure out who we are, how did we and the cosmos come to be? And he came up with five areas uh, of discussion, five talks that were given uh, back in 1941. And the first chapter, the law of human nature, is that there's a law of human nature, the rule of decent behavior, that we know it, we know what we ought to do, but a lot of the time we break it, we fail to do what we ought to do. We have done those things which we ought not to have done, and we have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And as the old prayer book said, and there is no health in us. But the point is that we know what we should do, but we don't always do it. And Lewis says that is very peculiar. So he then goes on to address some objections. He says this law of human nature that tells us the thing we should do is truth with a capital T, not convention. It's not something like what side of the road do you drive on? What side are the buttons on for men's and women's clothing? It's not stuff like that. It is something that is a basic and foundational truth. And he says the standard that measures two things has to be something different from either one of them. And the example he used about that was the piano, that there are white notes and black notes on the piano. But what tells you which note to play is actually the sheet music 
that you're looking at. It's not the notes themselves. And he says the reason this is so important is that if your moral ideas can be truer and those of the Nazis less true, there must be something, some real morality for them to be true about. So that is a key point. He then goes on in the next chapter that's called The Reality of the Law to say that human beings are different from stones and trees, not just in the way we look, uh, but that we are different in the way that we behave. A stone that is dropped does not have a crisis of conscience about whether it should fall or not. If it's dropped, it inexorably falls to the ground. It doesn't have any choice. But the law of human nature is different because it's not what human beings in fact do. Many of them do not obey the law at all and no one obeys it completely. The law of human nature tells you what human beings ought to do and do not. So that brings him to chapter four. What lies behind this law? Where did this law come from? And he says it has to be something other than the just facts of human behavior. And then he goes into the two views of reality we talked about, the materialist view, which is basically the idea that there was some primal goo and by some miraculous, although scientists wouldn't use that word, uh, series of events, this primal goo suddenly spawned life and all of the life forms and all of creation, all of the world, the seas, the land, the plants, the animals and human beings all came from that original primal goo. And Lewis says this is the wrong view in his mind the religious view, he says, goes all the way back to the ancient world that from the beginning of time, man has thought there was some kind of God. And Lewis says that one way to get at this is to look at our inside information. The idea that because we are humans who live on this earth, we can look inside ourselves. And he says when we do that, we find that we do not exist on our own, but that we are under a law and feel this compulsion that we ought to behave in a certain way, even if we don't. And that brings to the last of the chapters in book one, we have cause to be uneasy. I love that title. It's a great reminder that being comfortable is not always a good thing. He says, we have cause to be uneasy. The first thing he says is that many of us have a wrong idea about progress. And Lewis says, if you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. Uh, those of you who are here in Charleston will know that if you miss the turnoff, when you go over the Ashley River Bridge and you go down the Savannah Highway thinking that you're gonna to get to Wadmala Island on Maybank Highway, you'll get all the way to the city of Savannah and you'll never see Wadmala Island because you are on the wrong road. The fastest way to get to Wadmala is to do a U-turn and come all the way back to the fork in the road and get on the right one. And Lewis says that he believes that in so many ways, the culture and the world are on the wrong road and going further down it is most definitely not progress. 
So he says that we have two pieces of evidence about what lies behind the law. The first is the universe. And the universe is beautiful, but as he says, it can also be cruel. The other piece of evidence we have is the moral law, which is beautiful in the way that it tells us we should live. But as Lewis says, it's hard, of, hard as nails and it doesn't allow for excuses. So he says that leaves us in a predicament. If the universe is not governed by an absolute goodness, think about uh, the old Star Trek movies and the Klingons and people like that, evil powers running the universe. If the universe isn't governed by an absolute goodness, then all our efforts and our lives in the long run are absolutely hopeless and pointless. On the other hand, if the universe is ruled by an absolute goodness, then we are making ourselves enemies to that goodness every day. Every time we're selfish, every time we're rude, every time we do something that we know is wrong, and we're not likely to do a lot better tomorrow. So again, our case is hopeless. And so Lewis says this leads to a realization that it is when you realize there is a real moral law, that it's a real thing, and that there's a real power behind it, and that you've broken the law and put yourself wrong with that power, it is after all this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk. And last week we used the analogy of a little boy who's visiting his grandmother and is blissfully eating all of these chocolate chip cookies out of the cookie jar, sneaking them every day, gorging himself because the cookie jar is full with dozens of chocolate chip cookies. And he doesn't feel the least bit bad about it. In fact, he feels like he's getting away with something until that day that the grandmother comes in and says, we're gonna count out these six dozen cookies that we're going to give to various people that I have in mind. And when she, he knows that when that jar is opened, that what he did is going to be found out and he is gonna regret it. And if he's a moral little boy, he will regret not only being caught, but he will also be sorry about what he did. So Lewis says it's only after you realize that you put yourself on the wrong side of this power that you've broken the law. It's only after this that Christianity begins to talk. And he says in religion, as in war and everything else, comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. So that is where he leaves us at the end of that book. And we talked a little bit last week about some implications, and we went right back to the origins of these broadcast talks uh, with Jimmy Welch from the BBC. And he said, in a time of uncertainty and questioning, it is the responsibility of the church to declare the truth about God and his relation to men. It has to expound the Christian faith in terms that can be easily understood by ordinary men and women and to examine the ways in which that faith 
can be applied to present-day society during these difficult times. And that is, to me, a beautiful statement of exactly where the church finds itself today. We are in a time of uncertainty and questioning. We are in difficult times. And we, as the church, are the ones who need to figure out how to expound, to explain, to share the Christian faith in ways that ordinary men and women who are misguided can understand. We have to get rid of our pride or hubris that makes us sit in our ivory tower and say, oh, all of those bad people over there, they are so bad, they are dragging our country down the tubes, they're so bad, and we just judge them rather than sharing the word of life with them. We have to learn how to do that. And I love this definition of pride. Dangerously corrupt selfishness, the putting of one's own desires, urges, wants, and whims before the welfare of other people, irrationally believing that one is essentially and necessarily better, superior, or more important than others, failing to acknowledge the accomplishments of others. Dante's definition of pride was love of self perverted to hatred and contempt for one's neighbors. Ouch. Uh, That should, I think, touch a nerve for all of us. And that's why it put me in mind of this great little book by Tim Keller that I would commend to you called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And he makes some brilliant points here. He says, really, up until the 20th century, all cultures, regardless of religion, believed that having too high a view of yourself, being stuck on yourself or conceited, was the root cause of all evil in the world. But suddenly, there was a big shift uh, starting in the 1970s, I think, and our belief now is that people misbehave because they have too low a view of themselves. And so we do all sorts of things to try to build up their self-esteem, to help them not feel hurt, um, to protect them if they feel fragile, to give them safe spaces, all of these kinds of things. But what Keller says is that the problem is that we have the wrong view. He says the answer to this is gospel humility, understanding that we are beggars, showing other beggars where to find bread, and that our worth and our self-esteem comes from the fact that Christ died for our sins and we are bought with his blood, and that that is where our identity and our self-esteem comes from. Another thing that we talked about last week is that so many people in our culture today are inoculated against the claims of the gospel. It's like the way a vaccine works. It gives you a little bit of the disease so your body builds up resistance to it. And that's the way it often is with Christianity in our culture. People think they know what it is and they say, no, thank you. I don't want any part of that. But the problem is that uh, we need to be able to get a hearing. If we're going to do that important work of sharing the gospel, we've got to figure out how to build bridges. Lewis does a great job of that, um, and you can feel his urgency in this book with all of these logical arguments and analogies. And that works with some people, but other people, they don't even want to hear that. And this is where the power of story 
or what can be called meta-narrative comes in. People who have closed hearts and minds against Christianity might be very willing to read one of the Chronicles of Narnia or to watch a Lord of the Rings movie or something like that, works of fiction that through story portray the truth of the gospel. Beauty and transcendence can also be a way of opening that door to people's hearts. So many people uh, spend their time in places that are not beautiful. And this is one of the great wonders of uh, the beauty of churches and churches that have incredible music uh, and worship. When people walk in who have never been in that kind of environment that many of us take for granted, it is as if they have walked into another planet for many of them. And working with the newcomers in our church, I can tell you, I hear over and over again from people who were atheists but came to a service here because they wanted to see the inside of the building and they thought that was the only way to get in. And they come and they are overwhelmed by the beauty of it and the sense of the reality of the presence of something they don't understand, which is a great open door to be able to share the gospel. So part of our job is to learn to become translators of spiritual truth, the truth of the gospel for a culture that no longer speaks our language. And you see, that is exactly what Lewis did. He learned to speak in a different way, to use a medium that he wasn't used to because of his passion to share the good news of Jesus Christ, going even in the midst of the blitz at the risk of his life to do these broadcasts. So that gets us to book two. And so there's some interesting background here. Lewis was originally contracted by the BBC just for book one. And part of that was that Jimmy Welch wanted to keep him on, but his superior said, well, let's give this guy a try and see how it works. Because if he's a bomb, we can cut him off after five shows. But the fact of the matter is Lewis was a huge hit. And they got so many letters and so much acclaim that the week after the final broadcast of the first book, which was on August 27th, 1941, Jimmy Welch's assistant, the Reverend Eric Finn, wrote Lewis to confirm arrangements for giving away his fees and to propose a new series of five talks to be entitled What Christians Believe, which would be the follow-up to this first book. And they would be given on successive Sunday afternoons for 15 minutes each, beginning on January 11th, 1942, and concluding that spring which was just before the new German Baedeker bombing campaign began, which, of course, they didn't know was coming. We'll come back to that. So Lewis uh, immediately accepted. He, he wanted to go into this next book and share about what Christians believe. And so he wrote Finn back right away and said, I'll get to working on it. And he sent Finn a draft of the talks in November 1941. And I want you to just think about this time period. And any of you that have read The Splendid and the Vile, um, this will resonate with you. If you haven't read that book and you want to understand the psyche of England in this period, I cannot recommend it highly enough. But this is the period when the British thought it was the end of the world. The United States had not entered the war, 
despite the pleas of Great Britain, they were being bombed into oblivion. Uh, all of the countries of Western Europe were falling like dominoes before the Nazis. Um, Dunkirk had happened. It was a very, very frightening time, and there was no sense that the Americans were going to come in. It was a very, very dark period. And this is when Lewis wrote this part of the book. It's amazing. So he sent the draft to Eric Fenn, and on December 5th, two days before the Pearl Harbor attack, which caused the U.S. to enter the war, Fenn responded to Lewis with great enthusiasm. Now, you have to remember, these are Brits. These are people that don't wear their emotions on their sleeves and certainly are not effusive in their praise. Listen to what he says. I have at last had time to read your scripts. I think they are quite first class. Indeed, I don't know when I have read anything in the same class at all. There is a clarity and inexorableness about them which made me positively gasp. Now that's pretty strong. And Eric Finn was just blown away by what a great job Lewis did here. And it is um, really marvelous that these books came when they did uh, because this bombing that was to begin in that spring was one of the most devastating things that the Germans did. And it's called the Baedeker bombing because those of you who are of a certain age uh, will remember that Baedeker was the great travel guide company. Uh, sort of the, some of us who are older will remember Fodor's and Frommer's and Rick Steves and all of that. Well, Baedeker was sort of the original of that genre of books. And they pointed out if you went to a country or a city, the chief, most beautiful, most sacred landmarks that you should see. And the Germans decided that the way to break the back of British morale was to bomb the most beautiful and sacred buildings in England. Cathedrals, beautiful architectural uh, examples, gardens, all of that. It was one of the most disheartening phases of the war. And fortunately, Lewis had given these talks about what Christians believed before that happened. So in book two, Lewis addresses five things uh, about what Christians believe. He talks about the rival conceptions of God, which is what we're going to talk about tonight. Then he talks about the invasion then what he calls the shocking alternative, and then fourth, the perfect penitent, and the practical conclusion. Now, these titles don't give away too much about what he's going to do, but they do kind of pique your interest. So, uh, without further ado, uh, let's jump on in to the first chapter, The Rival Conceptions of God. So, this is one of the parts of mere Christianity that is such a great example for us today. One of the things that is a beautiful hallmark of Lewis's work is that he's always trying to build bridges. It seems like sometimes we are our own worst enemies because our predisposition, at least for me, often is to judge other people rather than to build a bridge to them. But listen at how Lewis 
hits this idea of other religions. He says, if you are a Christian, you do not have to believe that all the other religions are simply wrong all through. If you are an atheist, you do have to believe that the main point in all the religions of the world is simply one huge mistake. If you are a Christian, you are free to think that all these religions, even the queerest ones, contain at least some hint of the truth. When I was an atheist, I had to try to persuade myself that most of the human race have always been wrong about the question that mattered to them most. But of course, being a Christian does mean thinking that where Christianity differs from other religions, Christianity is right and they are wrong. As in arithmetic, there's only one right answer to a sum, and all other answers are wrong. But some of the wrong answers are much nearer being right than others. And I love what he's done here because in the time period that Lewis was writing in the same way as today, people who are atheist are thought of as being broad-minded. They're thought of as being inclusive and tolerant. Whereas in fact, if you're an atheist, you're saying that everybody that believes in any kind of religion is completely wrong and dumb. So what Lewis is saying is that Christians can actually be the ones who are more broad-minded because they can see the elements of truth that there are in different religions. Not that they are complete truth because Christianity is the only one that is complete truth, but that there are elements of things that can be admired in other religions. We're gonna come back to that. But that is a genius way of starting. It's an inviting, come and see, disarming kind of approach. So his next point is he says, the first big division in humanity is into the majority who believe in some kind of God or gods and the minority who do not. On this point, Christianity lines up with the majority, lines up with ancient Greeks and Romans, modern savages, Stoics, Platonists, Hindus, Mohammedans against the modern Western European materialist. And one of the interesting things is that even today, when people think the world is getting more secular, uh, that may be happening in Western Europe and America, but the rest of the world is getting more religious and more interested in religion and in religious practice. So Lewis says here, Christianity is in the majority with those who believe through the evidence that there has to be some kind of God. So then he drills down to the next level. He says, people who all believe in God can be divided according to the sort of God they believe in. There are two very different ideas on the subject. One of them is the idea that God is beyond good and evil. We humans call one thing good and another thing bad. But according to some people, that is merely our human point of view. These people would say that the wiser you become, the less you would want to call anything good or bad. And the more dearly you would see that everything is good in one way and bad in another, and that nothing could have been different. 
Consequently, these people think that long before you got anywhere near the divine point of view, the distinction between good and bad would have disappeared altogether. Now, this is very much what we hear in our culture today, that there's no such thing as good and bad. There's just personal preferences. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. So Lewis uses an analogy here. He says, we call a cancer bad, they would say, because it kills a man. But you might just as well call a successful surgeon bad because he kills a cancer. It all depends on the point of view. Well, let me just interject. Any point of view that says a surgeon is bad because he kills a cancer has clearly got its philosophical and moral framework really mixed up. But that's the problem with this kind of thinking is that its presuppositions are very far off base. So the opposite of that idea that there's no such thing as good and bad, it just depends on your perspective and everybody should just be allowed to think or do whatever they please. The other and opposite idea is that God is quite definitely good or righteous a God who takes sides, a God who loves love and hates hatred, who wants us to behave in one way and not in another. The first of these views, the one that thinks God is beyond good and evil, is called pantheism. It was held by the great Prussian philosopher Hegel, and as far as I can understand them, by the Hindus. The other view is held by Jews, Mohammedans, and Christians, Pantheists usually believe that God, so to speak, animates the universe as you animate your body, that the universe almost is God, so that if it did not exist, he would not exist either, and anything you find in the universe is a part of God. The Christian idea is quite different. They think God invented and made the universe, like man making a picture or composing a tune. Christianity thinks that God made the world, that space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and taste, and all the animals and vegetables are things that God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story. But it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made, and that God insists, and insists very loudly, on our putting them right again. Now, this is a really important point, because if you, if you believe there's no such thing as good and bad, and it's only a matter of your point of view, then there is no such thing as sin, there's no such thing as evil, and you can justify all sorts of behaviors um, that are really horrible um, in the classical sense from that point of view. But the Christian view is completely different. It says that creation is sacred, not because it is God, but because God made it, that God designed it, that God's creative power is shown in the diversity of the flowers and the animals and the plants and of human beings and of the landscape and all of those things. So that leads Lewis to what he calls the big question. If a good God made the world, why has it gone wrong? And Lewis says, 
For many years, I simply refused to listen to the Christian answers to this question because I kept on feeling whatever you say and however clever your arguments are, isn't it much simpler and easier to say that the world was not made by any intelligent power? Aren't all your arguments simply a complicated attempt to avoid the obvious? Now, if you have many discussions with people who are not believers, you may hear that same thing um, coming right back at you. And part of it, as Lewis says, is that it's easier and simpler to just say the word world just appeared, because then you don't have to worry about God. You don't have to worry that God might interfere with you or tell you that what you want to do um, is wrong or right, for that matter. Um, you want to just be left alone. But the problem with that is it doesn't hold up philosophically. So that gets Lewis to his next point about the standard. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction against it? And then he uses this analogy. A man feels wet when he falls into water because man is not a water animal. A fish would not feel wet. Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying the world really was unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe, and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. Now, I think this last point is maybe the easiest to kind of get a hold of if that left you scratching your head a little bit. What Lewis is saying here is that when we look at light and darkness, one cannot exist or be defined without the other. If you had always lived in darkness and you had no idea what light was, you wouldn't know that you were in the dark. You would think that was all that there was. But when you've experienced both light and darkness, you know that there's a difference. But they define themselves by one another. So Lewis is saying in the same way that when you look at a line on a piece of paper and you say it's straight or it's crooked, the only reason you can do that is because you have in your head the concept of what straight actually means. 
So this is a thought that Lewis is going to develop more and more over the course of this book. But it is, it's an important point to try to get your head around because it has to do with good and evil as well, that they are, um, it's important to know about both because if you don't think that there's evil, then how can there be good as the opposite of that? So there are a couple of implications of this that are important for us, uh, I think, in our culture today. And this is going back uh, to some of what we just talked about a couple of slides ago with myth and types and shadows. So for most people, when you say a myth, you think that means a fabrication, a false story, uh, maybe a story that was once thought to be true or something that was invented to deceive people, like the myth of the flat earth, for example. But for Tolkien and Lewis, when they use the word myth, they mean something like a grand narrative or a narrated worldview. For Tolkien, the four gospels narrate a story of a larger kind, which embraces what is true and good and beautiful in the great myths of literature, expressing it as a far off gleam or echo of evangelium and the real world. Christianity brings to fulfillment the echoes and shadows of the truth that result from human questing and learning. Types and shadows figure in the book of Hebrews as well as in Plato's allegory of the cave. Now what I'm trying to get at here and what Lewis wants us to understand is that myth is something that pervades cultures. Uh, many of you probably in school studied Edith Hamilton's Greek myths or Dallaire's book of Greek myths and you learned um, about the Greek gods and uh, you might have learned about Aesop's fables and other things like that. All of those are myths. But when you look in those myths, you find things that are elements of truth. One of the things that was very interesting to Tolkien on his spiritual journey uh, that he shared with Lewis and helped Lewis to be able to see was that all through other religions and all through other cultures, you find this story that happens over and over and over again of the dying and rising God. And many of those myths obviously are not based in fact, but what Tolkien said was that Christianity is the thing that all of those myths were pointing to. It is as if God had scattered seeds all over human existence, pointing to the truth that was going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that all of those things, the fact that there are so many myths that have similarities, that that's exactly what you should expect of God trying to reveal himself to his people and preparing people's hearts. And that is one of the great joys of good literature. Uh, many of you, if you studied English or majored in English, or even if you just had a good high school English teacher, um, read stories where you would be told there is a Christ figure in this story. Uh, you can see the same thing in the movies. Uh, if you like Spider-Man, go watch Spider-Man 2. Spider-Man 2 is almost a straight allegory about the Christian faith. 
It even ends with Spider-Man saving a bunch of people by putting his arms up like this, like he's on a cross and being wounded in his side. It's pretty obvious. But the point of all that is that we are haunted with this idea of the Christian gospel, that it shows up over and over again in religion, in myth, in our creative efforts. And the reason for that is that God has made us in a way that that happens. And the book of Hebrews, which I would commend to you if you've never studied the book of Hebrews or read it from beginning to end, it is all about types and shadows. And this is type, not in the way we usually define that word. A type in this sense means a forerunner, somebody who points to a future reality. And so in the book of Hebrews, it talks, for example, about uh, Melchizedek, that uh, priest that shows up in the book of Genesis, uh, one of those lay readers nightmare names that they never know how to pronounce. Uh, but Melchizedek shows up and greets Abraham, and it says he's a priest of Salem, which means peace, and he brings offerings to Abraham of bread and wine. Hmm. Do we ever see bread and wine in church? Oh, maybe we do. But that's all the way back in the book of Genesis with Abraham, long before Jesus. But in the book of Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews says Melchizedek shows us that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then all through the book of Hebrews, it talks about the tabernacle and the temple described in the Old Testament and how Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of those shadows that are being pointed toward uh, a future fulfillment. All of that system of blood sacrifice on the altar going all the way back to the book of Genesis points toward Jesus's sacrifice of his blood on the cross for our salvation. These things are types, forerunners, and shadows as if there's a solid object that when the light hits it, it leaves a shadow. And if you look at the shadow, you can learn some things about the object, even though it's not the object itself. But then when you've studied the shadow and then you see the object, you understand it in a really beautiful and full sense. And we see this same thing in Plato's allegory of the cave where the people in that allegory are chained in darkness in a cave. They never see light. They don't know what it is. All they ever see is shadows. And they give and interpret um, some meaning about these shadows. But then one day when one of them gets loose and is able to go to the mouth of the cave and go out into the light and see the sunshine and see the blue sky and the grass and the flowers, uh, that person is so overwhelmed with the beauty of this reality and how far superior it is to the shadows that he is transformed by that truth. And that's the same way it should be for us as Christians, that there are these shadows and types and myths, all of these things pointing to the truth of the Christian gospel. And this is great fodder for us as Christians to be able to share with others who are not yet there. 
to be able to point out these things, to point about how creation and all of human experience is rich with all of these symbols and shadows that point us toward the reality of Jesus Christ. Another point that Lewis makes uh, is the whole idea about absolute truth versus relativism. And Lewis was especially leery of progressive education. He would almost say progressive education was an oxymoron. And those of you that were in our class back when we did Lewis's delightful book, The Silver Chair and the Chronicles of Narnia, will remember that Pole and Scrub, uh, the children in that story, went to a progressive school that was called Experiment House. And all sorts of crazy, terrible things went on there. And Lewis felt that these faddish psychological theories that are behind progressive education were designed intentionally to supplant classical education along with its Christian foundations. And of course, today, we have seen the full flowering of that. I was just reading an article today uh, where a university professor was cheering the fact that she had finally gotten Homer's Odyssey removed from the curriculum of her school. Because why would you want to study a narrative by a dead white man? So that's where we are in a lot of our educational establishment. But Lewis is absolutely right here that this progressive form of education is going to abolish the foundations that we are used to for our ideas on truth. So the abolition of man, which I've talked about before, and the fiction work, that hideous strength, um, predicted that the outcome of this kind of education would be relativism. The idea that there are no absolute truths leading to the decay of morality and a lack of virtue within society. Without a belief in and the teaching of universal moral laws, we fail to educate the heart and are left with intelligent men who behave like animals, or as Lewis puts it, men without chests. Well, he certainly nailed that one. Uh, that is where we find ourselves. And the great irony about this, that Bishop Salmon, some of you will remember Bishop Salmon, Bishop Salmon used to say one of the big problems with relativism, using just very, very simple logic, is that if you believe there is no absolute truth, the problem is you just made an absolute statement. There is no absolute truth. Well, that's an absolute statement. That would be an absolute truth. So you're contradicting yourself right off the bat. So we're going to hear more about these kinds of things, but I want you to just think about this is Lewis's introduction to the Christian faith. Has he even mentioned Jesus? No, not yet. He's building the foundation. And this is so important for us to hear because so often um, we want to just jump into the, the good part of the story, the end of the story, without uh, doing the foundation building at the beginning. So this idea of inviting people in uh, and trying to explain 
how Christianity fits in with man's quest for meaning and religious belief from the beginning of time is something that's incredibly important. So that gets us to the end of the first chapter of book two. Thank you for hanging in there with me with that. Uh, I commend to you to go back and reread that, reread it slowly. There's a lot of great material in there. Let's close by saying together this passage from the end of Mere Christianity. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body and the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, we thank you that you are a good God, that you are the creator, that you have made light and darkness, and you have created a world where good and evil are subject to a standard which is clear because of the truth of your word. Lord, we pray that as you prayed in John chapter 17, that we would be in the world, but not of the world, that we would be sanctified in the truth because your word is truth. Lord, we pray that you would equip us and give us a passion to be translators of the truth of your gospel, this timely truth for a hurting world. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.